Hello, my dear friends. Welcome back to K9360 on KZUM. This is Jill, your uh, host every week to talk dogs and dog-related stuff. And I am still uh, riding the wave of excitement and energy and inspiration after a couple days in residence at Eastern Kentucky University, attending the Living with Animals Conference and listening to uh, some really amazing people present some really incredible information and insights about, excuse me, about uh, animals, right? So there was one track that was called Living with Horses and lots of cool stuff on that side of the conference hall. And then uh, Living with Animals was over on the other side and about a half a dozen of us were presenting on dogs, but other folks were presenting some interesting historical uh, things. And I even got to hear a amazing presentation on reptiles and hear an artist um, and see her presentation on how she uses worms and other crawlies to teach us about what it's like to be human. So super amazing conference. I was delighted to be included and uh, have the opportunity to meet some new people and just kind of go deep for a few days. Um, Scratch my little intellectual itch, right? Sometimes it's fun to to do that. So uh, one of the people that I met, and we talked a little bit about this on last week's program, was uh, is an expert who makes some significant contributions to the National Canine Research Council. And that's a website I would strongly encourage you to go take a look at. It's a nonprofit canine behavior science and policy think tank. Uh, whose mission is to underwrite, conduct, and disseminate academically rigorous research that studies dogs in the context of human society. They advocate innovative and practical canine policy. They have a lot of empirically verified data, research that embodies the principle that we have to consider dogs in relation to humans. They seek to remove barriers to safe and humane pet ownership And again, they provide and are supported in this work by, um, I think there's about nine leading experts in the field, ranging from Gary Petronik, who we're going to learn a little bit more about today, um, Adam Mikulski, who's an international researcher over in Eastern Europe, um, Cynthia Bathurst, who runs Safe Humane out of Chicago, a really amazing program. And I'm hoping to have Cynthia join us on this program in the coming weeks. So let's take another little looking glass, no, microscope, yes, Um, and look at some of the more dense reviews of some of the science that you can find on the National Canine Research Council website. Um, This one, there's a series of articles on 
the importance of reconsidering canine behavior evaluations in animal shelters. And these are a series of articles co-authored by Gary Petronic and Janice Bradley. And they suggest, they don't suggest, they pretty well demonstrate that attempting to analyze a dog's behavior in a shelter setting is no better than flipping a coin in terms of uh, whether or not that behavioral analysis will predict anything useful when that dog is finally uh, landed in its new home. So here's what they offer us in terms of summary and analysis. That using detailed hypothetical with statistics drawn from canine literature, Petronic and Bradley explain why, even in the most optimistic circumstances, behavior evaluations are still no better than flipping a coin. It's important to note that in all situations where estimates were required, the authors chose the most generous numbers. The authors define and explain the key attributes of these diagnostic tests or behavior evaluations, including sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and the prevalence of the behavior which is meant to be predicted. Sensitivity and specificity are inherent characteristics of a diagnostic test, and they refer to the ability of the test to correctly identify individuals with the target condition and the ability of the test to correctly uh, identify individuals who do not have the condition, respectively. They're often confused with sensitivity and specificity, but the test's positive and negative predictive value are separate concepts. PPV, the positive predictive value, refers to the proportion of individuals who test positive who actually have the condition or the behavior. Negative predictive value to the proportion of individuals who test negative who do not have the condition. So positive predictive value of behavior evaluation reveals the proportion of false positives. In other words, or for example, the number of dogs who are deemed aggressive who would not have shown aggressive behavior in the home. Because dogs who fail behavior evaluations are more likely to be euthanized, it is important to know the positive predictive value of these tests as they are applied. The authors used existing data on dog bites and owner surrenders attributed to the problematic aggression to determine the likely prevalence of these behaviors among the dogs living in shelters. They estimated the sensitivity and specificity of evaluations based on the best results achieved in analogous human behavioral diagnostic testing in the context of these estimates. The parallel is useful, we're told, because unlike diagnostic tests for disease and illness, where the condition is discrete and static, in other words, the tumor is present or not present, behavior evaluations are meant to measure plastic behaviors that fall in a spectrum with variance in prevalence and intensity. So there are several hypothetical scenarios discussed in this report this no better than flipping a coin, uh, including realistic outcomes and unrealistic best case outcomes. The demonstration that even if tests 
yield good rates of specificity and sensitivity, the predictive value of the behavior evaluations would still be give or take 50% for predicting whether the dog will exhibit threat or biting behavior problematic to the owner after adoption. 50%. That's why they're using the frame of reference no better than flipping a coin. Right? 50-50, heads or tails. The predictive value falls to 12%, meaning that something like 88% of dogs who fail the evaluation are false positives. And then there's some more science in there about adjusting relative to these percentages. The simulation carried out Petronic and by Petronic and Bradley demonstrates the futility of behavior evaluations in conjunction with other studies that show weak reliability and validity, this paper makes a strong case for discontinuing the use of formal evaluation in shelters. The authors suggest that in lieu of provocative tests with little predictive value, shelter staff should collect behavior, behavior histories when possible, verify serious reported incidents, and screen out dogs that are too threatening to handle safely. Beyond these measures, resources should be spent on positive, enjoyable activities such as walks and human interaction. Right? There's a second part to this research study. What's the evidence for reliability and validity of behavior evaluations for shelters dogs? This is kind of a prequel to the no better than flipping a coin. And uh, I should mention here that these articles appeared in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior um, a couple of years ago. Okay, no better than flipping a coin. The prequel is included on the National Canine Research Council Summary and Analysis because it comprehensively evaluates every study up until date of publication that made validity or reliability or predictive ability claims about animal shelter canine behavior evaluations. The authors aggregate all of the relevant existing data and summarize the lack of scientific support for canine behavior evaluations for dogs in shelters. This one, this study responded to questions and frequent misunderstandings regarding validity and reliability of existing canine behavior evals for shelters. The no better than Flimica coin takes a bit of a hypothetical approach and walks through best and worst case scenarios. This 2019 prequel, if you will, investigates and reports on existing published canine behavior evaluations that are now have previously been or are intended for use in animal shelters, both nationally and internationally. The report is thorough and precise, details what exactly each study reported, and pays particular attention to important semantic details that may lead to confusion about an evaluation's overall validity. So for an additional look at many of the individual studies discussed in the prequel, you can go to the National Canine Research Council's literature review, which also links to summaries and analyses of the papers that they've included. The primary focus of this invest investigative paper was to address the question, I thought it had been shown that a particular behavior evaluation had been validated or could reliably predict future behavior. But to do so, the authors systematically review the published literature and summarize instances 
where validity, reliability, or predictive ability have been reported on and assess the strengths of the claims made. An extension of that is that Petronic and his co-authors contextualize the reports and explain the type of validity that has been reported as well as the practical or clinical importance. So that means more than 17 peer-reviewed publications included in the analysis um, and the results in the author's assessment of whether individual tested criteria were established uh, with strong correlation statistical significance are summarized in this article if you want to go and take a look. One by one, the review addresses five issues. Colloquial versus scientific terminology, which simply means that sometimes shelter workers and the people who study dog behavior are using different words to describe common activity. Predictive validity versus predictive ability, the establishment of overall validity, limitations of correlation and regression, and then statistical versus clinical significance, right? I get out of my uh, depth pretty quickly too. So <laughs> trying, to, trying to bring this to you in as much of the lay, lay person's terms as possible, right? Um, so without getting too much into the, the weeds of the statistical stuff here, to begin the, uh, to address the question of interest, the authors first illustrate the scope of research needed to satisfy the scientific standard to validate the test, right? It's not enough to just have a small sample such as people who say, well, I've had golden retrievers my whole life, and that turns out to be three or four dogs. That's too small a sample from which to extrapolate sound conclusions. Um, They explain that in order for an instrument or measurement to be valid, it has to be reliable. And there are several ways that reliability can be established with respect to canine behavior evaluations. Um, So then they kind of talk about how many studies that they reviewed meet or met this criteria. In addition to specific examples from the literature, Petronic and his co-authors explain theoretical issues with establishing test-retest reliability specific to canine behavior evaluations. One, One indication of the reliability of experimental design is if it's replicable. Can you do it again? Right. So, for example, a dog's learning history or experience in the shelter between tests one and two may affect the dog's behaviors on the retest. Similarly, if test-retest reliability is established from time one to time two in the shelter, that does not mean that behavior would then be consistent or predictable in a different environment such as the home. You've heard me talk here before about how one of the things about dog learning that we sometimes find the most frustrating is that they don't generalize well. So a dog who demonstrates a certain behavior in one context may not, likely will not demonstrate that same behavior in a different context. Right? Your dog who will sit in your living room but won't sit in the driveway 
or the park or the veterinary clinic is one demonstration of that um, situational nature of dogs learning. So a dog who is aggressive in a shelter kennel can only be said to be aggressive in the shelter kennel. And whether that will extend to a demonstration of aggression in the home, there's simply no, no way to predict that. There are too many factors, right? It's also um, calls into question to slide it over uh, the ability of dogs to, or the belief that you can, for example, acquire a dog out of a program where the dog is trained inside a prison by a prisoner. There's absolutely no reason to believe that because the dog will work for that person in that context, that the work that that person puts into that dog means that you don't have to completely retrain the dog once he gets home to your house, because you will. Dogs don't generalize well. And that makes the behavior evaluation part in a shelter problematic for all the reasons that uh, they're talking about here. With regard to reliability, the authors conclude that demonstrated reliability of any type is largely absent in the published studies of canine behavior evaluations. And because of this, they remind us that if sufficient reliability cannot be established, you can't talk about validity of these tests. If they're not reliable, they're not valid. Does that make sense? Right? Um, let's see. What else can I share with you? There's a lot of really sciencey stuff here. Um, and they keep toggling back and forth between that question of reliability and validity. Reliability and validity. Right? There are six studies that attempted to pr establish predictive validity, but the results were weak and they failed to do so. Among the studies where there were weak to moderate correlations, unacceptable sample biases, example only those who passed the first time were retested, or subtests were not practically relevant. So it, it's, um, it's really hard to hold these kinds of tests to a scientific standard. The authors, um, in summary, they write, although a few studies reported statistically significant findings for various aspects of construct validity, none of the studies demonstrated compelling evidence of construct validity in a more global sense. And I think that's the uh, research science way of saying dogs don't generalize. They just don't. There are limitations of correlation and regression in these studies. Um, correlation measures the direction and strength of a linear relationship between two continuous variables. And uh, the authors illustrate this with an example from the literature where raw uh, raw agreement was reported for dogs biting behavior on an evaluation and behavior in the home which looked quite impressive, 81%, but when corrected for agreement beyond the chance that number dropped 
to much less impressive 42%. Okay, are you with me here? Um, predictive validity can be established when scores on a behavior evaluation in a population of dogs significantly correlate with a second variable that can be reasonably thought of as dependent on the characteristics being measured, such as future behavior in the home. However, meeting these criteria does in no way imply how accurate the prediction of future behavior will be. Predictive ability, by contrast, reflects the likely accuracy of that evaluation when predicting behavior of individual dogs in the real world as reflected by the number of errors, for example, false positive and false negative results. So if you say, if you do a test in a shelter and you say the dog is good with children, was comfortable with children, then the only children that dog can be presumed to be comfortable with are the children they were tested on. It won't generalize to all children because all children behave differently. So you can't control the variable and that messes up your data. Right? It's like cats. I had somebody call me the other day. Well, we adopted this dog and they said that the dog was good with cats. Well, the dog was good with cats that lived in the home of the person who kept the dog prior to the dog joining the new owner's home. And now we have a different cat with different behaviors and things aren't quite going as planned, right? That's the failure of that predictive value or that predictive ability to be able to say, the dog passed this test, therefore, right? It won't generalize and you can't hold the variables constant across context. So it's, it's not a scientific claim to make. Does that make sense? Hopefully, okay. Predictive ability, they explain, is determined by the test sensitivity, specificity, and the prevalence of the target behavior in the population of interest, which I think is what I just said. In the related article, No Better Than Flipping a Coin, Reconsidering Canine Behavior Evaluations in Animal Shelters, Patronic and Bradley dive deeply into the issue of prevalence and why canine behavior evaluations in shelters are doomed to result in high false positives even while false negatives are low. There's a bunch of statistics here about um, percentages that probably will be hard for us to follow in a radio conversation. It's a little easier if you can see the numbers, which I was, which is why I'm encouraging you to go look at the Canine Research Council website. The authors don't state so outright, but the takeaway from the presented data is clear. Acceptable predictive ability has not been established for any of these shelter evaluations to date. And finally, at the end, what Petronic and his co-authors tackle is the biggest concept of the paper, what it means to establish overall validity. It's not something that can be achieved with one study, one approach, or by establishing one aspect of reliability or construct validity. 
Establishing validity is a process with repeated studies of adequate sample size conducted using the target population, conducted under test conditions that reflect real-world conditions. And the authors conclude that given the lack of established reliability or validity for any existing behavior evaluation, those tests should not be used in animal shelters to determine a dog's future. They're simply not reliable. Of course, that doesn't mean we won't keep asking, right? We go in, and in that moment, we're looking at the dog not as an individual or the product of its genetics necessarily, but as a consumer commodity, right? The questions we ask about the features of the dog's temperament, its personality, um, are not unlike the questions we might ask about a new refrigerator. Is there a built-in freezer? Is it side by side or is the freezer underneath or on the top, right? Where can I store certain things? How easy is it for me to open? All of those questions that we would ask about any other consumer commodity, we, would, we will also ask about the dog. And I think what the challenge is here is that there's simply no reliable way to answer them. Because if you're at a shelter or a rescue, the way the dog acts in that setting will not help you understand how the dog might act in a new setting. The assessments are no better than flipping a coin. Okay? All right. So if that all makes sense, again, I'm going to encourage you to go look for yourself. National Canine Research Council, easily accessible online, a nonprofit canine behavior science and policy think tank whose mission is to underwrite, conduct, and disseminate academically rigorous research that studies dogs in the context of human society. They advocate innovative and practical canine policy. And I think you'll find a lot of really cool information there. Um, things that challenge what we think we already believe, what we think we already know. Um, it's being updated all the time. And all of the experts there who provide advice have websites of their own, and you can go check that out as well. All right, guys, I think that's it for us in these back-to-back sciencey dog programs. Uh, last week and this week, a little glimpse into the very cool work going on and available to us, the National Canine Research Council. I will be back here with you next week. In the meantime, stick around. The celebration's coming up. We're always glad when you're here with us on KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon.